One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the place where musical memories are transformed into life stories of a sort. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is John Brooks. John is a Canadian singer-songwriter who describes himself as polyphonic in sound, word, and influence. In his words, his music attends to calming those who've looked into and seen what's in their hearts and terrifying those who have not. His seven albums explore themes of paradox, love, fear, grief, religion, war, post-traumatic stress, artificial intelligence, refugee crises, animal justice, murder, ecology, esoterica, and the stars. He says his essential message is endure in good faith because you are loved. He's currently halfway toward a Master of Divinity degree, focusing on multi-faith religiosity, eco-liberative theology, and animal ethics at University of Toronto. He comes our way, the long way round, via episode number 57 guest, Canadian singer-songwriter Shauna Caspi. Hey there, John. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How are you? I am doing fantastic. This has been a long time coming. You were first recommended to be on this show back in 2019, and here we are in 2023. So uh, thanks for being patient with us and making it happen. Um, So as I understand it, you grew up in King City, Ontario, which is sort of a suburb of Toronto, right? Right. So, uh, you know, the 70s and 80s, King City was a relatively small town and there was 40 minutes of farmer's fields between where I lived and, and the big city. And, and today King city is part of the big city and it's got its own traffic jams. So um, it's, I, I like to say that I'm from King city because I grew up, I wasn't, I wasn't a Toronto kid and there is a distinct difference um, between you know, those who grew up in in the semi-rural suburb, suburban life of the 70s and 80s, uh, as compared to those who grew up in downtown Toronto. Hmm. How would you characterize the musical background of your childhood and growing up? And like, what were you being exposed to? And what were you swimming around in? I, I was, it, it was about back seats in, in Mercury Monarch, blue cars, um, driving to hockey games and hockey tournaments. And I grew up in hockey arenas. And my dad was a, um, uh, a country swing uh, drummer, uh, country waltzes, country swing. And he played every Saturday night for the first 10 years of my life. And so I grew up with a lot of old uh country and western music they actually called that without any trace of irony that's what that's what it was called then and in you know i i i, I would you know i have memories of hearing you know everyone from you know loretta lynn to chris christopherson to waylon jennings to to um more contemporary singers like engelbert humperdinck i remember sticks out in my memory uh, you know uh and also, uh, Dixieland jazz was a lot in the it was in the house too. So those were my those were my earliest musical um, musical memories. I would say. Hmm. What was the first band or musician that you um, found yourself focusing on that wasn't part of your parents' scene or something like that? Well, I would say. <laughs> it, I, 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 it's got to be some. It, it, I think it's probably Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd or strangely ABBA. <laughs> Interesting. What was the first? Yeah. What was the first music you owned that was like an album of your very own or a tape or I'm not sure what the era would have been. Probably a record. Yeah, uh, it would have been. Okay, so I remember, I still remember a gift I got when I was very young, and and the record still means a lot to me. The Muppet Musicians of Bremen, 
that was like 1972. But the first album that I actually owned and 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 kept a secret from the world in in my room would have been probably <laughs> Meatloaf Bat Out of Hell. <laughs> <laughs> what, what what did your folks think about that and, and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and the other things you were starting to glom onto? I don't know. I, I think they were generally indifferent. Uh, I I don't know. I, I I think as long as I was in my room and not making too much noise, that meant everything was well and and, and leave well enough alone. <laughs> You said you grew up in hockey rinks. Is that were you a player, or were you just that was the culture? So you spent a lot of time there. Well, both my parents were very much involved in in local sports: hockey in the winter, baseball, and soccer in the summer. Um, my, my dad was a hockey coach, um, and so I, you know, hockey for me is embryonic. It's just in my bones. I I was born the year after the Leafs won. Uh, the last Stanley Cup. So I've been plagued by this love-hate relationship for this sport. Uh, as a kid, I, I lived and breathed hockey. And I think one of the reasons I was a musician was because the number of times I dislocated my shoulder as a teenager playing hockey, it it it, it basically put to bed any notion of me ever winning the Stanley Cup. And that's when I got into music. Was piano your first instrument? I believe everybody's first instrument is something percussive. I think everybody, including non-musicians, start start their musical life very kinetically, and they just bang on something. And so mine was drums. I was imitating my dad. I mean, I have old pictures of me sitting on his lap while he was playing drums in the basement. But I quickly went from drums to piano lessons, and and uh, and I and I and I learned guitar by osmosis from hanging out with guitar players in high school. Um, how long did you do piano lessons? Cause I know that's, you, you were, you went on to play when you played music later in life, it was keyboard based primarily, if I'm not mistaken, before well, you, before you moved on yeah. to, to guitar yeah, time. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I, 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 I took piano lessons of variety of teachers and I, I ended up in Humber college the jazz program, which is a various, it's, second to McGill in Canada for really great jazz programs. And I landed in there by accident. I, I initially applied for theater and I remember them just saying as politely as they could, well, I don't see the range here, but perhaps you could, you'd be interested in our introductory course. And I wanted none of that. And so as I'm walking out of the college dejected, I bump into the husband of my former piano teacher, and it turns out he's a he's a he's one of the professors uh, teaching keyboards, and he said, "Hey, what are you doing here?" And I said, "Oh, I was just thinking about applying to music, but I think it's too late." Like, total lie. And he <laughs> he said, "What are you talking about? We need piano players. We're, all we get are these people from the Royal Conservatory of Music, and if they don't have music in front of them, they can't play." So he took me into his office, and then about half an hour later, I was in the music program for jazz piano. Could you read music? Did you know music theory? Did you learn all that stuff? Oh, yeah. Now, I didn't know jazz theory. That was a whole new world that, that opened up. And I, and I sadly, I was only in the college for three semesters because I remember there was a, a strike in 1990 and there was no school. And during that time, I was adrift and I ended up buying a Hammond organ, a Rhodes electric piano and joining a rock band. Huh. What was the name of the band? Oh, it's a horrible name. The Norge Union. I, I, it, <laughs> it was awful. I don't know what we were thinking. It was a pretty good band, though. We, we, we were, we were sort of like a Wilco before there was a Wilco. We had no, we had no, we 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 had no elevator pitch. You couldn't. We were just all over the map. We played whatever we wanted to, and you know, we were we were funky. We were we were loud. We there was an element of punk rock there. There was an element of singer-songwriter, country, uh, it was all over the place. And and I, th- I thought that was pretty forward-thinking, actually. I don't think that's such a strange idea today. But, yeah, we, we, wanted, we, we wanted nothing to do with genre. And that was probably the reason why we went nowhere, too. 
Hmm. Did you guys ever record? Is there any evidence of that that it still exists in the world? There is. I've got I've got a couple cassettes. We made a couple EPs. Huh. Um, okay, well, we'll get further into all this later, but let's do your first song. Um, this is the song Czechoslovakia? Yeah. And uh, we're going to play it first, right? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, this is John Brooks' first song today on Three Song Stories. It's Czechoslovakia from the 1969 album Street Noise by Julie Driscoll, Brian Auger, and the Trinity. So where's that song take you, John Brooks? It, uh, it's interesting. It's been so long since I've heard the whole thing. It's, uh, yeah, it kind of, uh, explains some of my musical interests later in life. Um, so I remember in King city, there was no bus service. So the only way to get around was you first had to hitchhike to, a little town called Oak Ridges, which is on Young Street, which in, you probably, maybe you've heard of Young Street. That's Canada's largest street. And Young Street in Toronto back in the 70s and 80s, that was the place to go. And that's where all the record stores were. That was the big downtown. So on weekends, we would hitchhike to wherever we could get a bus and we'd ride the bus south, then we'd get on a subway, then we'd go down, we'd, we'd come up out of the subway and walk out of the walk out of the up the subway stairs and look up and it was this whole other world uh, of adventure waiting for us and i remember the first stop was always um harvey's which was this burger joint at young and bloor and then we would just start at bloor and we'd walk south for about an hour and we'd go into every record store going down young street and and we'd come home we you know, we'd, we'd have about $40 to spend. So, and once the money was gone, that the night was over. That was, that was the way it was in 19 or early eighties, I guess. So we had to be very, we had to use extreme discretion and we spent a oh, painful amount of time in record stores making our, our, you know, ever important decisions on what albums we were going to commit to and come home with. And sometimes we'd come home with, you know, four or five or six albums and, you know, a couple of them wouldn't live up to the hope that we, 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 we had for these, uh, for these, for these experiments. But when you, when you have such little uh, resources and you put that much effort into buying the album, you listen to it. You, you almost forced yourself to like it. And over time, the magical thing that happened was we started to like it the more we listened to. It. And that that's a discovery which I don't know if everybody's getting these days. I and that's that would be a shame. But I I don't know. I, I find music is a lot like our our closest friends in life. I don't know. Tell me what you think, Mike, but for me the friends that are the most enduring, the ones that I've known for 40 years and that are still in my life in some meaningful way, they left very bad first impressions on me. <laughs> I, don't like know I, that's, I don't know if that's universally true, but I get where you're coming from. <laughs> Tara, well, Tara's given us two thumbs up from the booth. So I just, I mean, my best friend Kim, who was on this up on the podcast early days, um, we did not like each other in any way, shape, or form, and we've been best friends for about twenty five years now. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it it seems to me an indication that perhaps somebody's got something that you don't know yet that you need. I, I think people that are so much alike are like like magnets, and they and 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 you know they cancel each other out. Maybe I don't know, but. Some of my favorite albums, I, I look to this day. I mean, PJ Harvey. Every time she releases an album, I, I am, I am, I'm confused. I have no idea what what what's happening. Like, what is this? It takes me at least five or six listens before I go, "Oh my God, she's a genius. She <laughs> did it again." But I never get it the first listen. You know, I and I think that's, I. I just love music like that, like one giant onion where you just peel away layers, and every time you listen to it, you discover something else. Anyway, Julie Driscoll, 
and this particular album, I still remember uh, lucidly, I was in a place called the Vinyl Museum and I pulled this thing out and it was a double album, which was all the more enticing. And when I got it home, I, it was one of those similar experiences. Like, I don't know what's going on here. This is bizarre. I thought this was going to be something totally different. But the more I listened to it, um, the more I um, uh, came to love, um, particularly the arrangement with the Hammond organ mixed with the acoustic guitar. This wasn't something that I'd ever heard before. That was bewitching. And then, but more than anything, was Julie Driscoll's voice. It's... It's melismatic. It's it. It's there, there's something esoteric about it. It's she sounds possessed. It, it it almost sounds like something incantatory and terrifying. And that's another thing I've noticed over over the course of my life. The art that I that sticks with me and 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 speaks to me the most urgently is art that also comes with an element of fear and terror. I, I, I think that's a litmus test for me. Something has to scare me about what I'm engaging with in order for me to go, yeah, this is the real deal. And this song kind of kind of scared me. Uh, look at that middle section. What's going on there? <laughs> Some, suddenly they break into free jazz before I knew free jazz was a thing. It was a little bit like the way Zeppelin II and Whole Lot of Love collapses into this psychedelia in the middle of it. But unlike that, this doesn't come out of it. You're left swirling in this, this, uh, this uh, absurdium, this, this, this abyss. Anyway, very subversive song. I also, what also jumped out at me for the first time in my life was how overtly political it was. And, you know, listening to it now, I, I, I'm not a, personally a fan of overt political protest. I never think that really works. You know, when you point a finger at an audience and tell them, you know, this is bad. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't work. Stories work. But that generally being overtly uh, protesting about something is something I try to avoid. But when you're 14 or 15 and you hear this for the first time, this is, this is stunning. It was a punch in the, in the chest. Had you started playing the Hammond organ by that point, or was this sort of the beginning of being exposed to it? Not yet, but that might have been the first time where I took that instrument seriously. Like, this sounds bitchin'. Like, check this out. These heavy chords with the acoustic guitar. Oh, yeah. Still, I still love, I still love the music of this, and I still love her voice. It's just, it's ecstatic. She's, and it still gives me a bit of a chill. When was the last time you listened to that song closely? Uh, during my research for this episode, <laughs> I, which was, which was, you know, in part fun and in part very tedious because, you know, now there's, now we have rabbit holes and I am very susceptible to such things. So I, I had fun doing this, but man, I lost a lot of time too. Well, we appreciate you putting in the time. Um, uh, how long was that band together that you played the Hammond organ in before you moved on to something else? Um, so we started playing together in 1989. We got serious, I'd say, in 1991. And we, we played. And our last gig was February 20th, 1995, at the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto. I've heard and of that place. Oh yeah, that's that's trying to think of an, an analogy for the states. Um, if Massey Hall is the the Kent the Kent of Canada's Ryman or um, Radio City, uh, what would Horseshoe be? Not sure, but it, it's still there and it's uh, it yeah legendary stage. So it was good that that was our last gig. We learned some hard lessons back in back in those days. One is. Um, Never rent rehearsal space from a heroin addict. Okay. <laughs> it's not it's not good for the career of a, of a band with no money. Um, anyway, I, that fizzled like all first love needs to fizzle and die. So do first bands. And so that happened. And I took a break from music for about, ooh, eight years, I'd say. You, uh, you moved over to Europe uh, around that time, right? 
Yes, and uh, it's suspicious how neatly this story is going because that's generally not how life works. But the girl I went to Europe with, I met on that February 20th at the Horseshoe. Hence you knowing the date. (laughs) Thank you, yes. Yeah. So you met her at that gig? Like you just guys bumped into each other and then that that started a pivot moment? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I still feel bad about that whole thing. I, I don't know why we were together. That was a disaster. You know how sometimes you know you're getting into a relationship that is just not going to be good for anybody? Oh, absolutely. And yet, yeah. and, yet, and yet you do it. And then you know – you know, you know, you know, at a certain point when this is not going to last, there's a long interval between that point where you recognize this is not going to last and when it finally ends. Yeah. So that was a turbulent relationship and I followed her to Poland and that was also stupid. I mean, this might have to be censored, but I'm just going to say it because it's true. When I went to Poland in 1996, I was still 5'11", but 5'11 in 1996 Poland is pretty tall. That's like 6'4 here. Now, the quality of the water has obviously changed because there's lots of big Polish dudes now. But back then, um, I was this red-complexioned Scottish guy with a little red beard and I was that was also probably 50 pounds ago and I I was I was pretty hot I think you were killing it is what you're saying John (laughs) I was killing it I was 28 I was and 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 I I followed I followed a woman to Poland that I knew wasn't going to be wasn't going to work out and it was like bringing I brought sand to the beach is what I'm trying to say and so I do regret that, but then again, I don't because I can't. I know I, I can't. I do believe there are such things as regrets, but I sometimes think that the trajectories we take in life, um, you know, bring us as many gifts as they do uh, horror stories. Yeah, well, they all inform the moment that we're currently in. So there's at least that. Um, did you have any musical memories associated with your times uh, traveling around Europe? Because I know you kind of visited some places. Do you have any musical stories that pop out? Yeah, lots, lots, lots. I, I remember before I went to Poland, I bought a guitar. Uh, it was a, it was an it was a um, it, it was to celebrate the defeat of the band thing not working out. And I've always thought, you know we should celebrate our, our failings and our defeats as much as we should celebrate our, our successes, because I think defeats are also hard won. And so in honor of the failing of the band, I, I, I bought this 1995 Taylor 615 jumbo, which I still is my principal guitar. And I took it to Poland and then I taught myself how to play guitar over there. And, um, I remember I even played some gigs over there. Uh, like open mic kind of stuff, basically, or just any chance, you know, a couple chances to get up in front of a crowd? No, I was so arrogant. The energy of delusion, man, it, it cannot be underrated. So when, you were when, like, when, I'm going to be a, a singer-songwriter, yeah. man. You better yeah. book me. <laughs> yeah, I just walk in there and go, hey, um, I'm looking for a gig. <laughs> uh Anyway, so yeah, no, and it, and they were good. Like you know, I I wasn't playing. I didn't have very many new songs yet. I was I was starting to write again, but I didn't have a whole set of my own songs. I was playing, oh, just a mess of covers. I mean, I was one of five native speakers in Krakow, Poland, in 1996, and so it was kind of a, it was almost like fireworks to the local Polish people to come and hear a guy sing. Uh, a U2 song that didn't have some awkward Eastern European accent. Right. So that's what I did. And I mean, I, that wasn't the main reason I was in Poland. I was teaching English. I was going to school. Uh, and uh, it was the first time, you know, my, my eyes opened to the world. It, it late bloomer, I guess, but I didn't really have a, I don't think this, the kitten's eyes opened until 1996. And then you came back to Canada, but if I've got the the timeline correct, you didn't really strike out on your own with your guitar in a formal way for quite a few years after, right? That's right. I I got to a point 
soon after I started writing, where I recognized mercifully that if I am going to see when I was when I went to Krakow, I traveled all over the place. And one place I ended up in for about a month was um, was former Yugoslavia. And back then they had no no infrastructure and no th- nothing to stop me going there. Uh, thankfully, the, this is in the days long before social media, so it was relatively, I say relatively safe. It was still a hot zone, and it was dangerous, and, and there was landmines and, and, and no place to stay. I didn't know that until I got there. Um, anyway, um, after all the things I saw and experienced and learned, um, I recognized what I knew what kind of songs I wanted to write, but I also thankfully had the awareness that if I'm going to do this, I have to get a proper education. So I went back to Canada and started a, a degree and first it was politics, then it was music. And then I finally ended found myself in the, in the English department where I ended up getting a, an honors BA in English. What'd you do for a job before you turned to music more, more formally? I had a few jobs. I had a, I was an usher at the Princess of Wales Theatre, where I met my wife, which with, with whom I'm still with today, and I have the, I have, I have um, the dubious fun fact of having seen Lion King two thousand times. Wow! You want to sing us a little? No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> you probably no. could though, if you if you if you had to. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. It's a strange kind of trauma to endure that. But I was an usher at night and I went to school during the day. And then that was for four years. And then and then I be, and then I worked in a brewery. I brewed beer. Um, and then I ended up and then I found myself working in a in a in a. Uh, how do I describe this without misleading people? I it was a it was a theological bookstore. It was run under the auspices of the Anglican Church of Canada, but it was very ecumenical. We sold books from all religious traditions, and uh, I was like a kid in a candy store, Um, and I did that up until 2009. Now, at that point, I had three albums out, but I I had yet to throw myself into full-time music, and it was in 2009 I became a full-time touring musician. During those first few years when you were, you know, working on school and doing those, you know, being the usher, were you still plucking away at a guitar like at home just to, to your own self and progressing that way? Um, my girlfriend, Sandra, who later became uh, my wife, had stumbled across an old cassette I made in Poland in 1997 and she listened to it, and I remember she punched me. Like, she said, what, what's this? <laughs> what are you doing? I didn't know about this. In other words, <laughs> in other words honey, this is good. <laughs> yeah, the, she was saying, you need to do this. And, uh, and she encouraged me, and I guess that's all it took because, um, yeah, I threw myself right into it after I got uh, – see, see, the, see the magic of encouraging others? Such right. an underrated power. Oh, I totally agree. Cheers to that. And it's such an easy thing to do, right? Like, what? You know, I don't know. What? Why? Why would people do anything other than give a younger person a kind word of encouragement? It's the. It's one of the greatest things for the world, and it's so easy. I concur entirely. Um, let's do your second song and then we'll get, uh, into, you know, the, the music you've made since that time and, and, you know, what you're doing now, what's your uh, second song? It's the Nick Cave and the Bad Seed song, right? Okay. So this song blew open a whole world for me. And I remember sitting in February in a dorm like room steps away from like a 13th century Polish castle and the BBC was one of the stations we got. I, I think it was BBC. I don't know what it was. Anyway, this song came over the radio. I remember I was skipping a class this morning. This morning, I just wanted to have the place to myself. And I was drinking this 
awful instant super strong coffee. I can still smell that when I hear the song. Outside, the snow was everywhere, but it was kind of warm temperatures. And this song came on, and the first line of the song, I don't believe in an interventionist God, and it just jumped out and, and, and grabbed me by the throat and shook me. And uh, since then, I've, I've, I've been a lifelong Nick Cave fan. But anyway, this happened in uh, 1997, Poland, about a week after the album was released. Well, let's listen to it, imagining you there doing that. Um, this is Into My Arms by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds from the 1997 album The Boatman's Call. This is John Brooks' second song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories. We call this biography through music. Into my What's that make you think uh, or feel as you listen to uh, with us now? Um, whenever I'm whenever I'm confronted by artistic moments that just touch ever so slightly perfection or the divine or something, I I, I it makes me want to cry. And that's uh, that's 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 as close to a perfect song as I can think of. And but you know that's not the reason I picked it. I just uh, I chose it because of what it meant to me when I first heard it, and how that song just brings up uh, kind of a five minute video of my life from back when there back when I was somebody else. Coffee smells and all, everything. Yeah, the 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 the, the bizarre uh, uh, style of the uh, the brutalist dorm architecture. I even remember, you know, exposed concrete and eh, the whole the windows, these strange windows. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, another thing I was thinking of when I was trying to think of songs for this show was it's, it it I had I, it. I don't know the answer to this, but it uh, it teased out a question, and that is, um, to what degree are these songs um, examples of 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 transformative moments in our life, and to what degree uh, were the moments that we were in, like maybe that time in Poland was a transformative time in my life, so all that I came in contact with was was that much more powerful. You know what I mean? I do totally know what you mean. You know, the moment, does the moment make the song as powerful as you yeah. remember it or, or, or vice versa? Exactly. So it's a, a strange paradox there, but I think that both are true. I think, yeah, I think they are true too. And, you know, it's interesting. I was asked because of this show to be on another show talking about love songs and what makes a good love song. And I came out, came at it from this show's angle, which is, Love songs may be the craziest song in the world. It has nothing to do about love. It just was there right. when love happened. And it was like the other guests were like people who were talking about songs that are about love. So. Yeah, I, I, that's, I find that one a cringer. And I think people, anybody who's written songs for over half their life would probably agree there's only two kinds of songs. And that's an unfinished song and then a love song. Why would we create a song if not to add something life-giving, something something good to the world? I, you know, every song's a love song. That's why I, songs that made touch on dark material, uh, songs that might be outright emotionally uh, emotional catastrophes, they're 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 great love songs. When you first put out your first album, um, did you write new songs for an album? Did you collate and collect the songs you had been plucking away at? How did that first album come to be? Well, the first album was No Mean City, and that album came to be from a plan, uh, a failed attempt at writing a book about Toronto architecture. So... (laughs) How do I put this? The song was the, the album. The album was called No Mean City. That's named after a favorite, a famous uh, 
a book by an architectural scholar, in, uh, and it was about the history of Toronto architecture. So that's where the title comes from. And and the idea for this story was um, I wanted to document the the history of Toronto homelessness and put it vis-a-vis the lavish architecture and uh, and you know what's the word I'm looking for um, you know just just the just just the obvious um, uh, riches that that this this culture and this part of the North Atlantic world enjoy I find it very sadly ironic that you know there's homeless side by side with um, absurdly uh, the absurdly wit, rich and wealthy. Anyway, so the the album idea was formally what I would do is I would take an address in Toronto, and the first verse would start with an, a description of the architecture, and then the second verse I would go into the house and talk about the people in in who were living there now, and then the third verse would be some kind of a synthesis of. Of both that that was the idea for that album and all the songs were written for that particular album except one which was an old song from our band and it was a song called by the lake and i i added that at the end because i realized i really needed something upbeat something not just not just thematically upbeat but something really sonically upbeat because the album was particularly um dark i still like it but yeah your your music, your songs are, are described. I don't know if dark is is the right word, but your songs have um, a serious tone, but it may not be a serious theme. But I'm trying to. Your songs are hard to characterize. I just want to talk about a little bit Moth Nor Rust because I've listened to it and the remake of it like a gazillion mm. times, and I just got to wow. tell you, it's so good. And that way you oh, describe. Thank you so much. The way you describe that Nick K uh, that Nick Cave song. Like there's a couple songs on those albums, man, that I'm just like, oh God. <laughs> yeah. So I just had to throw that out there while we're talking about your music. That makes my day. Thank you. That's sweet. But I don't know how to describe your music. I mean, I know that's the most unfair thing to do in the world, but no, no you know, but that's you- a good thing though. Like, let's think about this for a second. Let's pretend an alien shows up in Fort Myers today and says, "Hey, Mike." What's this thing called Leonard Cohen? What are you going to say? Yeah. How do you describe that? Yeah, no, that's true. You you, you can't. It's it's, a, it's an it's an amalgam. It's a it's a it, anyway, how, how do you how would you describe Nick Cave if someone who'd never ever heard of him? Like how do you how do you put that into an elevator pitch? I I hate elevator pitches. I always say if if my songs could be reduced to an elevator pitch, they'd be useless. Your songs do, though, provoke thought. They do, though, poke at society. Would those be fair assessments? Um, I hope that I provoke thought. I I always aim to inspire 87% and deeply offend 13%. That's the goal. And I also, I think I've probably changed that percentage over time because I've come to realize, and quite contentedly, I, my music's not for everybody, and, and that's totally cool. Honestly, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not for everybody. I don't want to be for everybody. It's not my interest. I, there was a while where I toured around and I, it would really hurt me if somebody took something I said or sang the wrong way or, or, or didn't like it. It would, it would, it would, it would knife me. And I don't like, and I didn't like that. But then I got, eventually I got over that and I just thought, no, I'm just flat out not for everybody. And that's good. Uh, Nick Cave, Julie Driscoll's not for everybody. Anyway, um, so I don't know. I, I find I, – I, I don't know. I, I'm the last guy you should ask for having to sum up my songs, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, it, um, okay, well, then let's step back and be a little bit more in the concrete world. How many albums have you put out now, like six or seven, something like that? So seven, and it's very frustrating, this this – this new world where no one makes any money with making music. I've got about uh, 25 new songs that I really, really like. And I think they're the the best ones I've ever come up with. And um, I just have zero means to, um, to record them properly. So I don't know. That'll, 
that'll happen in time, I guess, but um, it should happen sooner or later because songs sometimes have their moments in time, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so I do plan on on releasing at least two more albums. I like Tarantino's, you know, plan. You know, he wants to do 10 movies and then that's it. I'd so, like to do 10 CDs, 10 albums, not CDs. Who says CDs? Who uh, well, I do. What's a I, CD? You and I do, John. That's okay. Right. Um, I, I alluded to the fact that your your 2009 album, Moth Nor Rust, you then re-released it or re-recorded it, rather, in 2019. Can you just sort of explain what the rationale was before, you know, to redo it? Because it's, it's the mm. same, but it's not the same. Some of the lyrics are tweaked out to be a bit, bit more modernized. There's one new song. But what was the rationale behind that? Um. The main reason was, is I felt that this this album contains songs that, unlike No Mean City and the War Stories album, Ours and the Shepherds, this was an album that contained songs which were of a bit more universal uh, character. Now, the older I get, the less I believe in universal truths, but... There's something about the song There Is Only Love or When We Go or, you know, In the Alleys or If We Keep What's Within Us. That song, those songs work on a, on a number of demographics and audiences. And, and I didn't like how later in my career, after my, my first record, I got out of my first record deal and I just made this new acquaintance with Fallen Tree Records. And I really loved Fallen Tree and their and and their artistic view. They they didn't they they, were, they sort of transcend genre, and they were just very positive. And I really wanted to give them something immediately, but I had only just released an album called No One Travels Alone, and so I thought let's do this album properly. And I went back to the original producer, but this time I went back with the musicians I'd started I'd been playing with for the last year. One of which, is, one of which is somebody you you knew from way back when, right? Right. Yeah, Neil. I just saw him. He stayed with us a couple of days this summer. Neil's uh, Neil was Neil was a very old and dear friend. We're brothers. Our first gig was at the Salty Dog Saloon in Kleinberg, Ontario, and it it was it happened about a week after the Chernobyl accident, huh. April April nineteen eighty six. And Neil was in the rock band I had in the 90s. Neil played with me uh, in, all through high school. And, uh, and then through, just during the last 10 years or so, he lives in Vancouver. I'm in Toronto. So I, he tours with me whenever I travel out west. And I just thought it was time I get Neil on an album. Well, actually, he played on No One Travels Alone, too. But with this Moth No Rest 2, Neil, his, his role was... You know, it wasn't just a guitar player and a, and a singer. He was almost like a co-producer. You play uh, keyboard some on some of your more recent records, right? Yes, and I do have a lot more keyboard-based songs, um, and I would like to involve more more synthesis, uh, more ambient sounds on the new the new album, whenever that happens. Do you find um, – I don't know if this, song, this question is going to make sense, but you seem like your songs have a, a really deep, unabashed sincerity built into them. And yes. we live in a – especially – I don't know if we're coming out of it or what, but for a long stretch of your career, we've lived in a world of cynicism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, is there – I don't know what the question is, but it's just – did you ever get grief for people being – why are you so sincere, John Brooks, I guess is the question. Yeah, there's – couple hipster rags that slammed how sincere a couple songs were and they weren't wrong there was one song that didn't make the second cut a cut a cut of moth and rust <laughs> i i look back on that song with a little bit of a cringe but um thankfully i started i start my first album as a solo artist happened when i was like 36 37 so i'm very lucky that i I, I wasn't out there recording everything that popped into my head in my twenties. Huh, um, huh. I've only got three songs that I wish I could, you know, take back. And, but, but as for sincerity, I am, 
I take that as a compliment and that I'm, I'm very happy that that came through. I want to be sincere. I want to be, I want to be machine gun sincere. I want to be urgently sincere. And what scares me more than anything is earnestness and maudlin. I do not want to be maudlin or earnest. That's a, that's a nightmare, but I want to be a machine gun of sincerity live and in the studio. I love that's that. what I, I just mean. I, I, I think the world yearns for this, whether they act like it or not. It's very easy and cool to be cynical, but people need to choose kindness over coolness. What they want to hear from a person on stage in 2023 is a sincere devotion to the good. Let you know, that's I, my that's what I think anyway. I concur with that, too. We are on the same page in that regard. Um, we are going to head toward your third song, but first, um, you've played on a lot of stages. Do you have a favorite stage you've ever played on? Yes. the It's in Melbourne, Australia. The Spotted... The Spotted... Oh, Melbourne, Australia. i got to look this up quick. The, the, spot, the Spotted Mallard. <laughs> Love that place. That was a special gig. Um, anybody, if you could share a stage with any musician, alive or dead, who would it be? Share a stage? Yeah, play with somebody. Collaborate. Warren Ellis. Who's Warren Ellis? Well... He's Nick Cave's. He is to Nick Cave what Neil Cruikshank is to me. Oh, okay. The musical, the musical compadre, the musical yeah, in the force of inspiration and and sort of quiet producer. Hmm. Uh, the, let- the guy who will the guy who will tell you when something sucks, and the guy who will turn your idea into something better than than if it was just you know, you alone. Huh. Uh, last question before a third song. You happen to know who Dan Byrne is? I know him. Um, and my bass player today, uh, Vivian Wilder knows him personally. She's done a lot of gigs with him actually in her own band, Vivian Wilder and the vice presidents, but I've never met him and I'm not that familiar with his music. Okay. I've just been a fan of his for, you know, 20 plus years and and he would be the closest thing down here in the states I think to the kind of music you make, but at least that's my opinion. But I just wanted to ask cuz he he's somebody else who who I admire uh, the work of like I do you. But let's do your third song now. Oh yeah. Would you like me to introduce it or do you want to just play it? Well, I don't know how to pronounce it so we can at least have you pronounce okay. it. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So so this is uh, this is by um, the Hindustani classical uh, vocalist uh, Kishori Amankar, and the song is called Maro Pranam. All right, take it away, Jared. So what's the story? In 2017, at the end of a intense uh, 22-day tour in the space of about two, maybe three weeks. Uh, I was driving home from Hutchison, Kansas, uh, home to Toronto. And uh, instead of stopping halfway in between and taking a a break, uh, I had one of those incomprehensible bursts of energy while driving long distances. And I decided to carry on to my destination of East Lansing. And when I got to East Lansing, I slept for about four hours, woke up, and then drove home. But before I made it home, I stopped off in a Walmart in Flint, Michigan, and felt something coming on, which in the world of epilepsy is called the aura. And then I woke up about an hour later in a Flint, Michigan emergency ward with two dislocated shoulders and nerve damage to my leg. So I had had this massive seizure, which I hadn't had a seizure since I have to go back to the early nineties. And so I had to drive to desperately drive across the border to where healthcare doesn't, you know, cost me an ungodly amount. I had to drive from Flint to um, uh, Sarnia in Canada 
It's about like an hour and a half drive uh, with two dislocated shoulders in the middle of the night. I made it. Everything worked out. Everything was fine. But what I discovered after speaking to neurologists uh, in the 21st century was is that I, I had undiagnosed epilepsy. So I lost my license because of that for a year. I and I and I obviously couldn't play music for about seven months. I had to I had to get my shoulders repaired and 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 my leg. Uh, anyway, the during the period where I was recovering, I was on the couch with headphones and Percocets and Tylenol threes. And just going down rabbit holes on YouTube of um, of of Hindustani um, music, which always fascinated me. I think if we stick with music long enough, we will discover Bach, we will discover the Sufis, we'll discover West African desert blues, and eventually we'll discover the ancient art of Hindustani classical music. And uh, it was during this time when I heard this song and I immediately uh, went on Kijiji to find somebody in Toronto that could give me vocal lessons in this tradition. And so uh, as we're doing this interview, I am at level four of an eight level degree in uh, Hindustani vocal. Huh. Have you put any of that into, I mean, you said you're kind of, you got songs that you've written that you haven't recorded. I mean, is that going to influence the sound of what we hear when you put out another uh, album or new music? Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my, I think my voice now is unrecognizable to people that have heard me on, on you know, any records that I have out right now. I, I don't even recognize my voice. It's, 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 di- it's an entirely different voice. Is learning to sing that way changing the way you look at constructing songs overall? Yep, I would say that's totally true too. It's really fascinating. It's like when you get a new instrument too, it it automatically inspires a new song. And it's the same thing, the voice is the instrument. And the voice is, you know, for all our for all our ingenuity and and our ability to create sounds and instruments that make interesting sounds, this the instrument that carries with it the most intense emotional data is the voice. And so I really threw myself into this and all throughout the pandemic. And even to this, even, even to this day, my, my principal interest is, is in the voice and, uh, and yeah. So all the more reason why I want to get these songs recorded properly. Um, it will be a very, very different sound. Hmm. Um, we're going to do a speed round to head toward the end of the show, but uh, one last question. Are you playing out? You know, I looked at your website, and it looks like you got some gigs listed next year, one next later this month. Are you still playing around your neck of the woods right now? Um, so I do. I, I played all summer in Toronto at a residency at the Cameron House, Sad Mondays. I've been doing that off and on since 2016. That's always fun. So I got to play all the new songs there. I'm doing one gig in a couple of weeks down at local gig, and then I'm uh, nothing really much scheduled because I spent the first year of the pandemic trying to recalibrate my my songs and purpose to something that could translate digitally, and I have some friends that where it worked, but in in those particular cases, they always had engineering help or technical help. And I, I never had that. And for a year, I stubbornly toiled away at trying to do this until I finally got to the point where I realized I, I not only do I not know what I'm doing still, but I just am not enjoying this. I, and I'm going to, and I recognized in around 2021, I, I, I came to the realization that, you know, except for the 1% of musical acts out there, the independent songwriters of the world, Live music for them isn't going to be financially justifiable until probably 2025. And that turns out to be true, in my opinion. Um, I did a couple festivals in Texas back in March. Um, I went to Thailand for two months and performed at a elephant sanctuary for, it was like a writer in residency kind of thing. And 
but you know generally i i can't justify touring and travel the, the some of the, the some of the clubs and, and places are, are have opened up but not all the people have come back so uh right now what i did what i did in 2021 was i did something that i always that always interests me and i'm now halfway through uh a master's of divinity degree at university of toronto uh for inter-religious theology huh is that in person or are you doing that through a computer <laughs> the first year was all zoom uh, but uh the last couple semesters we've been in person are you like the old dude in class no, there's lots of I, you know. I'm I'm kind of the old dude everywhere now, but um, I don't feel uh, that I, I don't. I, I'm not a purple monkey there. There's lots of other, um, you know. You know, the, a theology degree is is something that should come slow and generally later in life. I, I never trust a twenty something doing a theology degree. Hmm. Um, okay, let's do a speed round to uh, to wrap up or head toward a wrap up. Um, do you, John Brooks, have a nickname that has stuck over the course of your life that you would be willing to share? No. When was the last time you purchased music that had physical form? Uh, it was not that long ago, actually. I was in a used record store and bookstore, and I stumbled across Glenn Gould's 1982 Goldberg Variations, uh, an album of Ukrainian folk songs, Shaved Fish by John Lennon and the Plastic Ono Band, John and Vangelis, Friends of Mr. Cairo, and Ramsey Lewis, Wade in the water, and, and they were. I, I think I got all those albums for under under forty dollars. Hmm. Do you do karaoke? No, I. I'm not. I'm not above going out to a karaoke party. It's a. They can be fun. Um, no, I. I. I, cu- I couldn't do it. it I couldn't. <laughs> If you were a champion, uh, if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you enter the arena to? Rage Against the Machine, Bulls on Parade, all day long. What would your wrestler name be? <laughs> John the Revelator. <laughs> well done. Um, <laughs> what activities or pursuits make you lose track of time the most? Well. I think writing you lose yourself when when you finally tackled the terror of the blank page. But another thing that I can lose hours on are hockey pool picks. Hmm. Song you wish you could hear again for the first time ever. Hmm. Anything by Nina Simone. Can you imagine the first time hearing that voice? Yeah. But one song in particular still gives me nightmares, and I love it for that. Uh, Karen Dalton's haunting Katie Cruel. I would love to hear Katie Cruel for the first time again. What about an album that you could listen to for the first time, sit down and hear it from start to finish? Hmm. Um, PJ Harvey... Let England shake. So it could confuse you for the first five listens? Yes. <laughs> no, to see to see if after what is it, ten years, if maybe if maybe it doesn't confuse me now as yeah. much oh, as no. it first did. Oh no, that's a good point. Um if you could broadcast a song like magically into the head of all humans on the planet Earth in a collective moment, which song would you choose? Okay, so if I'm going to play ball with this question, I would say run DMC. It's tricky. If only to make the entire world dance at the same time. I love it. I love it. Most people but, get all like, what song I'm going to be, make them hopeful. But you're, you said, but what's the, but I think if over 8 billion people danced at the same time, we'd have an ecological catastrophe the like we haven't seen in millennia. So 
I like the idea of playing Dr. Roger Payne's Left Overseas Running. It's a track from one of his field recordings of Humpback Whales. Huh. And I, th- I think if we pump the songs of whale, me- whale Song or of Saturn's Rings into all of humanity's ears, it might remind all fellow creatures out there how we are not the center of things. Hmm. Um, what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today, John Brooks? I would hope he would be able to appreciate how relatively uncompromising I've been throughout my life, how kind of unapologetic I've been toward doing that which inspires me. But I suspect he wouldn't even notice me. Hmm. He, he might say, hey, cool tats, dude. That's probably what he would say. Hmm. Um, well, it is time for you to recommend three people who you will share this with that you think we might have a chance of getting on someday. someday. Right. So I would like to recommend my bass player, Vivian Wilder, who is a first-rate songwriter in her own right. And I hope she would agree to this. I think it's a fun interview. I don't know why she wouldn't. Vivian Wilder. Okay. Uh, I would like to recommend Lynn Harrison, another songwriter in Toronto, but also somebody who who helped me uh, with the whole spiritual discernment process which led me to um you know studying theology right now she went through the same program years ago we have a lot in common with each other Uh, lynn harrison and uh for the third one he's a he's a another very old friend i've known since way back in high school and he is uh, a very successful screenwriter currently living in san francisco now and his name is Will Zmack, Z-M-A-K. And I love having friends in your life this long. You, you, you cannot bullshit people that have known you for the, you know, two-thirds of your life. And all we do when we get together is laugh and laugh. But I can still also have um, very inspired uh, conversations with Will. But he'd be a guy. I hope he would do it. Um, yeah. Well, put a bug in his ear for us. We would appreciate it. We love finding new people this way. Um, you've done it, John. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave us and uh, the listeners with? Yeah, I I would like to just say to all the songwriters or performers and maybe people in general, um, some songs that they should avoid playing. Um, I think we're done with simply having a wonderful Christmas time (laughs) and please, please stop, stop singing Leonard Cohen's hallelujah. It's over. It's over people. It needs to be retired. It can be listened to in private with headphones to, to, to great reward, but I can't hear that song in public ever again. Hmm. It's people are ruining it. Well, John, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a true pleasure talking to you and uh, nothing but the best of luck to you in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. You've been very patient and you're, you're an interlocutor of the first order and you do embarrassing good research. Most times I don't do interviews because I'm just tired of, you know, how long you've been playing guitar or, uh, you know, I, but anyway, I really appreciate all the work you put into the show. It's a great, it's a great show. It's a great premise. Um, and, uh, thank you, Jared. And I believe Tara's back there. And I think there's somebody maybe by the name of Richard that also makes the show happen. Everybody needs to be, uh, thanked for all the work they do. All right. Thank you. 
We're handing it off to John for this week's parting tune. This is him performing his song, When We Go, live with his band, The Outskirts of Approval. It's the first track on his album, Moth Nor Rust 2. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared Gonzalez. Chris Duff is his executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. No, we can't take that old letter from my first lover No, we can't take anything unto that some great other Every long sock and every diamond We can't prove it Cause everybody knows If it's not love We can't take it When we go We can take our ex-wives' laughs and our mother's worry lines We can take off that which we gave to those Of whom we had to help And of whom that taught us most But if it's not love, we can't take it We can't take it when we go When we go, wherever we go If it's not love, we can't take it when we go To that place where moth nor rust Cannot touch us past this dust it's not love, we can't take it when we go. And all our prizes and impulse buys, they will be faster praised. And into one bargain bin, they'll be casually thrown. Until what's favored and are forgotten. Delicately be told If you're not love, kid We can't take you When we go We can't take it When we go When we go Wherever we go If it's not love We can't take it When we go To that place where my heart no rust cannot touch us past this dust. If it's not love, we can't take it when we go. Keep listening.